reading is um, from John 16, beginning at verse 28, and it's on page 1084. Jesus said, I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe, Jesus replied, a time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things, so that, you, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Thanks, Margaret. Please do keep your Bibles open at uh, John 16. What we say when we leave somebody is important, isn't it? Whether it's the last thing you say to your child before you drop them off for an exam, the last words before you go into the operating theatre, or the last words you say on your deathbed, those words are important. We want our words to leave an impression, to be remembered, hopefully even to be helpful. Think of Caesar's et tu brute, which clearly identified his murderer and are remembered centuries later or the reported last words of comedian Spike Milligan. I told you I was ill. <laughs> Some of the most memorable last words were uttered by Martin Luther King, who ended his final public speech in truly memorable fashion. Have a look at this clip and you'll see what I mean. Luther King. We got some incredibly powerful isn't it I don't know about you but it sends a shiver down my spine every time I hear those words and see that clip 
No one could be sure whether the king knew that he would die the next day. He knew his life was in danger and that death could come at any point, but had he had some premonition from God? We simply don't know. But it does seem incredible that he would utter those words on the evening of April the 3rd, 1968, and die from the assassin's bullet the next day. The parallel with Jesus' situation in the short passage Margaret's just read is clear to see, with one exception. Jesus absolutely knew he was going to die and that his death would come on the cross in full submission to his father's will. The words Margaret has just read are, according to John's Gospel at least, the very last words that Jesus says to his disciples as a group before his crucifixion and resurrection. So they are very important indeed. They warrant some careful unpacking so we can discern what he was trying to tell them and what he's trying to tell us. Let me pray for God's help as we do that. Our Heavenly Father, please help us understand your word this evening. Help me speak your truth clearly and help us all learn more about you from this passage. Please allow your spirit to work in our hearts and minds so that our attitudes can become more like yours. In your name we pray. Amen. So all four Gospels recount what has become known as the Last Supper, but only in John's Gospel is there this detailed account of what Jesus said to his disciples. It spans chapters 13 to 16 and ends with the words we've just had read. This account immediately precedes the longest prayer said by Jesus in the entire New Testament. He prays first for himself, then for his disciples who are clearly very much on his mind, and then for all Christian believers. It's hard to put ourselves in Jesus' position. Of course, he knows what is going to happen. He knows he'll be convicted in a show trial. He knows he'll suffer an excruciatingly painful death. He knows he is doing his father's will by allowing this to happen. He also knows that his death will accomplish the greatest act of sacrifice there has ever been or will ever be. That his death will allow all of humanity to come into a proper relationship with God. He is also acutely aware that he will rely on his disciples to share this astonishing news with the rest of the world. That this message of hope is entrusted to these men and that these men are, just like all of us, sinful, weak and prone to getting the wrong end of the stick. If we look at these five verses in isolation, we'll miss the full impact of what Jesus is saying. Verse 28 comes at the end of a section in which Jesus has been explaining how the disciples' grief at his death will turn to joy. They have not fully understood. And of course, they do not have the benefit of the hindsight that we have. Despite being told several times that Jesus will rise, they either have not understood what that will mean, or they have not fully believed that Jesus will be resurrected, that he will prove he has conquered death, and that he will rise into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, interceding for them and for all who put their faith and trust in him. Jesus even says that having spoken figuratively at times up to this point, often using parables, he will now speak plainly. 
He knows his disciples need to hear what he has to say loud and clear, leaving no room for doubt. I must admit I very much warm to this kind of approach. I like to tackle things head on and I find conversations which seem to skirt around the main issue very frustrating indeed, as several of my colleagues can testify. So the idea that Jesus is now speaking plainly is exactly what I need. So if we look at that verse 28 in that context, it couldn't be a lot plainer. Please look at it with me. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Jesus is making an explicit statement that he was with the Father before he came into the world. He is saying he existing in that Beth. Now that a limited reference to his divinity. He is saying he was with God before he came to earth. They cannot misunderstand what he means. Jesus then adds that he's leaving the world and returning to be with his father. That again is unmistakable. We all only have one method of leaving this world, and that is by dying. He is telling his disciples he will die. But he is also telling them that that is not the end. After he dies, he will return to his father. A clear and explicit statement that he will continue to exist after his death. There is a future for him after death, and it will be spent with his father. While he doesn't spell out the details of the resurrection or the ascension, he tells them what's going to happen. Not surprisingly, they seem happy with this clear explanation and respond positively. According to John, in verse 29, they all agree he has been speaking clearly and without any figures of speech. The disciples then say in verse 30, do look at that with me, now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. That makes us believe you came from God. It seems the plainness of his speaking in the earlier verses has convinced the disciples that Jesus is from God. That's so clear to them, they don't feel anyone even needs to ask Jesus any questions. Now that's remarkable in all sorts of ways. First, that they should have had any lingering doubt that Jesus had come from God. They've been with him pretty much every step of the way. They have seen him perform countless miracles, including raising people from the dead. They've been his closest friends. Yet even so, it's only now, right at the end of his life, that they are fully able to believe he has come from God. What does that tell us about our own faith? We've never had the benefit of seeing Jesus in the flesh, of seeing him perform miracles in front of our very eyes, of being first-hand witnesses to his divinity. So is it any surprise that perhaps our faith can sometimes waver? One of the great prayers I heard when I first became a Christian was, Lord, help me in my unbelief. It was in one of our hymns, that very phrase, this evening. It sums up exactly that doubt that lingers, I suspect, in all of us and can rear its head at times of huge stress or crisis. How can the mother of a child who contracts cancer still believe in God? 
How can the bereaved families in a natural disaster still believe in God? How can anyone in a world riven by war, poverty, persecution, tyranny, injustice, believe in God? Yes, Lord, help us in our unbelief. The second remarkable thing about the disciples' reaction is just how slow they are. They really have to have everything spelt out to them many, many times before they get it. It's almost as if in this passage, John is showing them, showing us the moment when finally they get who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. But their dimness should give us great cause for hope. There have been many times since I became a Christian when I have struggled to see God's purpose in a particular series of events, whether it be one of our family falling ill, something unexpected work, or any of the many global crises which we are seeing so often these days. On a very small scale, why did Kerry, Fergus and I catch COVID two weeks ago? I can't answer that. I know humanly how we are likely to have caught COVID, but why now, and not a year ago, is beyond me. Only God knows the answer. So like the disciples, we often remain slightly in the dark about what God's purpose are in any particular situation. But that is just fine. As Jesus makes perfectly clear in verse 31, when he says, you believe at last. That ultimately is the hallmark of anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. That he or she believes that Jesus came from God. Indeed, that Jesus is God. And that by dying on the cross, he paid the price for the sin of ever, every human being who has ever or will ever live on earth, provided they believe. That is all it takes that you believe in Jesus Christ. Now that's an easy thing to say, but not always an easy thing to achieve. As I've said, we can all point to lots of reasons not to believe in Jesus. But a close and deep understanding of the Bible shows us that Jesus is trustworthy, that he keeps his promises, and that he wants only the best for those who follow him. It is precisely at those moments when our faith may be called into question that we most need to trust him. Put yourselves in the position of those disciples for a moment. They're coming to terms with the fact that Jesus has just told them he will soon die. They're trying to compute what that means. How can the Son of God die? Surely God, by definition, is immortal. They struggle with the enormity of what he's saying. They struggle to think what life will be like without him, of how they will cope. But Jesus is saying, it is wonderful that this very moment of crisis is when they finally demonstrate they believe. We too need to believe more in Jesus at those great moments of crisis. We need to trust him more and allow our faith to grow stronger, not reject him, and drift into a world without faith, without hope, and without meaning. That can give us great hope to face the future, even a difficult future, with confidence. Look again at how Jesus reassures his disciples in verses 32 and 33. Jesus says, 
A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus knows the disciples will face trouble in the future. They will be persecuted, they will be scattered. Yet it is on those frail human beings that he will build his church. It's from those first disciples that the church we now belong to grew. Without them, in all their dimness, in all their unbelief, in all their doubts, we would not be gathered here this evening. Jesus knows too that the disciples cannot accompany him on the journey he is about to take. He knows he must die on a cross and that they can only watch from afar. They do leave him on his own, with Peter, of course, famously denying three times that he even knows Jesus. Only Jesus can make this journey because he is the Son of God and his death alone is sufficient to pay the price all our sins deserve. Of course, it's a journey that his Father in heaven wants him to make, as painful as that is to both Father and Son. Jesus knows his Father is right there alongside him on the road to Calvary. Jesus then spells out exactly what he wants the disciples to understand and why he has told them all of this. He's talking about the previous three chapters of John and he wants them to know all this precisely because he wants them to have peace. He wants them to know that he will be just fine, even though he has a terrifying ordeal to go through. He knows where he is going and that he will soon be seated with his Father in heaven. He also wants them to know that they will be just fine, even though they too have ordeals to go through. He is telling them that the Christian life will not always be straightforward, with everyone pulling together and those outside the church thrilled to hear the gospel and be brought into relationship with Jesus. No, it will often be difficult, with divisions in the church and hostility from outside. But, he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. And that is the greatest news they could hear. Indeed, it is the core message to them. It's the very last thing he says to them collectively before his death. The Greek word for overcome here has strong military connotations. It means to win victory in a war or in some kind of contest. So that should leave us in no doubt that there is a battle going on between the powers of this world and the powers of heaven. But Jesus says explicitly that he has won this war, that he has conquered the powers of this world. He has conquered all the things that trouble us. He has conquered anxiety and fear. He has conquered hatred and persecution. He has conquered sin and temptation. And of course, he has conquered death. That doesn't mean we won't experience some or all of those things. And for some of us, those things will be very real and very damaging. But, and this is the key point, we can and should take heart from the fact that Jesus has conquered these things. 
So when we hear hurtful words aimed at us because we're Christians, or we worry about what others will think of us, or we fall into the same old sin time and again, that doesn't mean we're defeated by those things. No, Jesus has already defeated them. And so we need to turn back to him in repentance and thanksgiving. The worst the world can throw at anyone is death. And Jesus knows he will soon die. But he also knows that he will be resurrected to life. He will prove in a miraculous, divine way that he has overcome the very worst the world can throw at anyone. He makes that same promise of eternal life in heaven to all who believe in him. That gives the disciples all they need to face the future. And it should do the same for us. They could not at this stage have fully understood how Jesus was paving the way for their place in heaven. But we do. We should not be afraid of the future. There seems little doubt that we're in for a rough ride in the coming months. Who knows, even years. Economic and political uncertainties are crowding in. We live under the spectre of global conflict. COVID is still a real threat. But through all of that, we have the certainty that Jesus has overcome this world. Martin Luther King knew that and made no secret of it in that final speech. There is nothing this world can throw at us which should destroy our faith in Jesus. We have a certain hope of joining him in heaven. So we should all very much take heart. Let us pray. Father, please forgive us for those times when our faith wavers or our confidence in what you have done is less than it should be. Help us always to remember what Jesus accomplished by dying on the cross and rising again and to trust in his unfailing grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.